The way to heaven is not through good works, self-righteous religion, church attendance, Sabbath keeping, or righteous law abiding. Neither is the way to heaven through losing weight, meeting your financial goals, achieving ketosis, or tidying up your house by removing what doesn't spark joy. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, who is himself the way. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we have a message from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. A very important message for those of us who are easily stressed, easily worried. We're reminded today that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And we can set our hearts at ease when we rest our life and eternity in Christ by faith. Hope you enjoy the message today. God bless you. Have you ever heard about the worry or the worrier for hire? There was a man who told his friend, I have a mountain of credit card debt and it's become so big, this credit card debt has become so looming that I've lost my job, my car's been repossessed uh, and uh, our house is in foreclosure, but I'm not worried about it. And, And his friend said, well, how on earth can you not be worried about all of that situation? And, and he said, well, uh, the reason I'm not worried is because I hired a professional worrier. Uh, he does all my worrying for me, and so that way I don't have to think about uh, any of the stress that I'm going through. And so the man said, well, that's amazing. That's fantastic. H- how much does he charge you uh, to be a professional worrier? And he said, well, he's not cheap. He charges me $50,000 a year. And the man said, $50,000, how on earth are you going to afford that? And he said, that's for him to worry about. (laughs) Now, we may this morning not have at our disposal a professional worrier to to pay, but there are plenty of things that this morning we we may find ourselves stressed out about or or trying to hobbled when we're unsure of and just being overwhelmed with. Uh, Some of us, when we're, we're stressed, when we're troubled, when we're overwhelmed, we turn to eating. And so we open the fridge, and that's our, our, our place of kind of solace, our refuge. Other people, they grab the credit card, and they hit the mall and go shopping. Some people go to the gym, and we're not sure what's wrong with them, but <laughs> they go to the gym. Other people will revert to cleaning and organizing. Everything's got to be clean. Everything's got to be uh, organized. And so in these moments of panic, we kind of feel like life's out of control. And so if there's something I can do to put life back into control... Uh, then I have some control in my life. But see, these things that we, we turn to are not the ultimate things. They're not the ultimate heaven. They're not the ultimate freedom. They, they bring a pseudo temporary relief, but they don't actually solve the problem that we're facing. And so as we open John chapter 14, we find the 11 disciples, and I say 11 on purpose because one of them's gone. And they're in a place, quite literally, a, a state of absolute panic and dismay. The one who left them out of the room that would have been the 12th, uh, that was Judas who had left to betray Jesus. And now the clock is ticking before Jesus is crucified. He just revealed to Peter, their ineffable leader, that he would soon deny Jesus uh, three times. Not only that, but Jesus told all of his disciples that in just a little while, I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be with you and you will not be able to come with me. So as we open up John chapter 14, we are opening to some of the most comforting words 
in all of the New Testament. It's hard to do this section of Scripture justice in one sermon, but we're going to give it a, a go this morning. Today we're going to look at how Jesus is the only way to the Father, and in verses 1 through 14, we're going to actually see three aspects of the Father. So if you're taking note, here's our outline today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 at how uh, Jesus reveals the Father's house. It's a big, big house. All right. Uh, we're going to see, secondly, the Father's image, verses 6 through 10a, and who that image is. And thirdly, we're going to see the Father's works in verses 10b through 14. So with that as kind of our, our template, we'll start in the first verse and look at the Father's house. Look at verse 1 with me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Everyone say troubled with me this morning. Troubled. It's a very fascinating word. We'll, we'll dissect it in a minute. He, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, why would he say that? Why would Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled? Well, if we rewound the Blu-ray disc back to John chapter 13, we would find a few things happening. If you look back in your Bibles, just glance back for a moment, there should be a heading above verse 21 that says something like, one of you will betray me. That sounds ominous. If you skip down to verse 33, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That doesn't sound very encouraging. And then down in verses 36 through 38, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, you can't come where I'm going. And, and Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, actually, no, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. And so Jesus has just brought them three pieces of news that are incredibly unsettling. In fact, the Greek word for troubled here, if you want to circle where it says, let not your hearts be troubled, you just said it back to me. The word troubled in the Greek is the word terasso. Uh, it does mean troubled, but it also means to stir up, to cause acute emotional distress. Another word that you can be translated is turbulence uh, or to cause great mental distress. If you've ever been on a plane, the pilot says, okay, folks, we're about to enter some turbulence. Uh, go ahead and buckle up, fasten your seatbelts, and take a seat. And, and then you experience turbulence. Everyone on the plane is in one state in one moment, and then suddenly... When the plane moves up or moves down, moves to the side, suddenly everyone in the plane is in a different state. And that's kind of the idea from this word. And notice with me, in case you missed it in verse 1, that the remedy for being turbulent, the remedy for being troubled, for being stirred up with emotional mental distress, Jesus says is this, to place your faith in me. Now we'll talk more about that later, but for now... To bring peace and comfort in the midst of their concern, Jesus begins to tell them about his father's house. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Incredible picture in these uh, two verses about heaven. And so for a minute, I want to unpack four aspects about heaven from these two verses. So if you're taking note, you can take a picture of the screen or jot these down. Uh, all of us, we don't talk about heaven enough uh, in church, and so all of us can benefit from this. Um, notice with me, first of all, on the screen that heaven is a place of familiarity. It's a place of familiarity. Jesus says that it's my Father's 
house. He's inviting us to his father's house. Notice with me that that heaven is not what many people believe. It's not just a concept. It's not just an ideal. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not something we sing about like that girl is heaven. It's not just this conceptual thing. It's a place. Uh, Note Jesus says, it's my father's home. It's his home. You could say rightly that heaven is home. Just think about the synonyms that come to mind when you think about going home. For most of us, maybe not all of us, but for most of us, uh, home is a place where you're comfortable, where you're safe, where you're at rest, where you're secure. If you've ever traveled overseas for a week, uh, a few weeks, a month, or if you've been out of town for months, there's, there's something wonderful about and longing for just getting back home. And, and you get there and it's like, man, I'm just, I'm just so thankful to be, to be home. Remember what Dorothy said? There's no place like Kansas. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus is comforting his disciples with the reality of heaven being our home. He he says home once later in this chapter, down in verse 23. Look at it with me. Uh, Skim your eyes down to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, the connotation is that of an abode, a place where God calls his own dwelling place. And the root word for abode is the same root word for abide. And so the idea is we make our home in him. He's right now making a home for us where we will ultimately be at home with him. F.B. Meyer says this about my father's home. He said, what magic power lies in that word? It will draw the wanderer from the ends of the earth. It will nerve the sailor, the soldier, and the explorer with indomitable endurance. It will bring a mist of tears to the eyes of the hardened criminal and soften the heart of stone. And there's no place like home. It's a place of familiarity. But secondly, Jesus points out that number two, heaven is spacious. Notice that Jesus says in verse two that in my father's house are many rooms, many rooms. Same word, a home that he uses in verse 23. The rooms mean multiple dwelling places. Other translations, maybe you grew up with the the King James Version, uh, puts this as the word mansions. Um, I think that's kind of an unfortunate word because it's a little bit of a stretch. The idea is that I've got a mansion waiting for me in heaven. The idea is more accurately that we have a, a, a smaller dwelling place, like an apartment. And so I'm sorry to downgrade you a little bit from the mansion to the apartment. Uh, Here's what Godet, the Swiss theologian, remarked. He said, the image is derived from those vast oriental palaces in which there's an abode not only for the sovereign and heir to the throne, but also for the sons of the king, however numerous they may be. So it's not a downgrade, actually. You get to be in the actual home with the sovereign. And there's, there's multiple dwelling places, and there's a place for all, and there's a place for us. Uh, No matter how you translate it, the idea here is that there's many dwelling places. It's not like Jesus says to John, hey, you're you're John the disciple whom I love, remember? And so I've got got a wonderful three-story one for you. And then, you know what, Thomas? You're a doubter. And so you get a 100-square-foot shack, right? I'm not going to allow you to live close to me. No, uh, that's not the point. D.A. Carson says the point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples there's a in his father's home. He has a place for you who have received the gospel. There's a place for you. 
It's in his father's home. Heaven is spacious. It's as wide and long and high and deep as the loving heart of the father. So it's spacious. Thirdly, if you're taking note, heaven, this is amazing, has been prepared. It's been prepared. Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us. Heaven itself, listen, heaven itself represents the glorious restoration of all things that had been marred by the curse. Heaven represents the reversal of the fall. You see, when sin entered the world uh, through Adam, the way to heaven was corrupted. Uh, The truth of God was twisted into deception. The life eternal suddenly became a threat, not a gift. And so the work of Christ after his resurrection and ascension, his work is kind of twofold. It's to make intercession for the believer and also to secondly prepare a place where we once again walk with God, so to speak, in the garden in the cool of the day and have a feast together in restored relationship. And so in verse 3, Jesus is reassuring us that if that weren't so, I would, have, I would have told you. I'm not lying to you. I'm not tricking you. I'm being honest. He's preparing a place for us. I love Keith Green. Uh, Micah and I both are big Keith Green fans. If you don't know about Keith Green and you're younger, please look him up. Uh, Spotify, go check him out. Keith Green used to say this. I love this. He used to say that if, if, if God created the heavens and the earth in six days... And look how beautiful and amazing creation is. Uh, But he tells us that he's going even now to prepare a place for us. How much more amazing are the new heavens and the new earth knowing that it's taken him 2,000 years? I love that idea. I love that picture. Jesus is outfitting our eternity in such a way that it is fully prepared and it's rightly fitting for each one of us. I mean, just think about when you invite someone over to stay with you overnight. And, and you have an extra room for them. Or like you do what we do with our kids, we kick our kids out to the, uh, the air mattress and then the guest gets the room. Uh, uh, what do you do with that room? You prepare it. You hopefully get new you know, sheets and, and, and uh, you vacuum, you dust, you put some extra pillows out there. Uh, you make sure if they're using the bathroom there that you have ample uh, towels and washcloths unless you're sadistic or something. You make sure they have enough uh, that they need, and, and maybe even add something to the room that's kind of special for them. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a verse that's for them on a, on a card, or, or, or there's just something special, a little added bonus room. They love dark chocolate, so there's some dark chocolate uh, cookies in the room or whatever. Uh, you make it special for them. You've prepared the room for them specifically, and I believe Jesus is preparing our dwelling places in a very intimate, personal way. Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, the place is prepared Are you prepared for it? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, your preparation has begun. Do you love the Lord and love his people? Uh, Then if so, your preparation is going on. Do you hate sin and do you pant after holiness? If so, your preparation is progressing. Is Jesus your all in all? Then you are almost ready. May the Lord keep you in that condition and before long swing open the gates of pearl and let you into the prepared place. He's going to prepare place for us. But number four, and this is probably the most important aspect, is that heaven is, number four, where the presence of Jesus will ultimately be. Jesus promises he will come again, the picture of his second advent, and he will take us to himself that where he is we may be uh, also or always. You could say that heaven is where Jesus is, and heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Uh, Paul told the Philippians, In Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart 
and to be with Christ, for that's far better than to be here. That's my desire, to be with Christ. He said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let that be an encouragement to some of you who are near, nearer death uh, in your, your uh, disability or in your sickness. That to be absent from this frailing, broken body is to be present with the Lord. See, heaven isn't just heaven because there's no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. It's heaven because that's where we'll be with the Lord forever. And that truth, above all, would have comforted the disciples after hearing they're about to be separated from him. So at this point, you got to love Thomas. He's always going to have the, the kind of, you know, title in front of his name, poor guy, Doubting Thomas. So uh, Thomas, after Jesus in verse 4 says, you know the way where I'm going. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And I would say it's an honest question. We, we haven't been there yet. We don't know the way. If you've ever been invited to some place and you've never been, someone says, oh yeah, you, it's easy to find. Well, I don't know. I haven't been there yet. It's an honest question. If I haven't been, how do I know the way? Uh, and so now Jesus explains, not I know the way, but he says, I am the way. I am the way. There was a, a missionary, uh, E. Stanley Jones talks about it, who was uh, lost in the African jungle, and he couldn't find any landmarks. His trail vanished, and suddenly he found a, this small hut. He went up to the native and uh, said, hey, can you lead me out um, uh, to where I was before, and so the native nodded, he rose to his feet, and he started walking just into the bushes. And um, the missionary started following him, and for about an hour, uh, they're kind of navigating through uh, just really dense uh, vines and grasses, and finally the missionary said, you know, um, are, are you sure that, that you know the way? I don't see the path. And so the, the man chuckled, and over his shoulder said, Buana, in this place there is no path. I am the path. That's kind of the picture uh, of what Jesus is saying here. So let's see this thought fully developed with the Father's image. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, church, Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just proclaim truth. He is the truth. Jesus doesn't know the way to have life. He himself is the life. Verse 6 is one of the greatest philosophical, if not theological, statements in all of human history. And what he's saying here is that the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And he's already said in verse 1, if you believe in God, which is important, it's an imperative, you believe also in me. And that was a claim of equality with the Father, a claim of deity. Jesus, in verse 6, says... There's only one way to heaven, to this place I'm describing, my father's house, and it's only through me. Now, our culture doesn't like that. That's a very exclusive claim. And Jesus is either being honest or he's lying. He's either a lying lunatic or he's Lord. And so uh, notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the only way to heaven I'm the only way to the Father. In fact, if you look at me, you see the Father. I am the visible representation of the invisible God. Uh, when you see Jesus, you're seeing the nature and the image of the Father. Now, I love that right here in this moment, the Bible gives us 
all of the Bible characters, they're not fake characters, they're actual people, but it gives, it gives us a picture of them warts and all. You know what I mean by that? Like, it's not like it gives you rose-colored glasses and Peter had great faith and walked on water. It also tells us Peter sank, you know. And so I, I love that right here, John points out, uh, and John always points out which disciple it was, you know, I'm not sure why, but he was like, oh, just so you know, it wasn't me, it was Philip. All right, verse eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, Philip is exerting the cry of every person who's not interested in the metaphysical or the theological. Those people say, you know, I I don't need to take it on faith. Just let me see it, and I'll believe it. Show me the Father, then I'll believe. Now, he's not wrong, listen, in understanding this, that a vision of God, a vision of the Father, will satisfy the human heart. He's not wrong. If I see the Father, that's enough. And he's not wrong in that assertion. It's certainly true, but he's completely misunderstanding who's right in front of him uh, in living color. You can almost hear Jesus' disappointment in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is a, a, a statement of maybe a little bit of surprise. In the scriptures, we get an unequivocally strong argument that Jesus is the image of God, the image of the Father. Uh, let me give you a few ideas. Colossians 1, 13 through 15, Paul says, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, amen, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And here's the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, praise God for that. And then it says of Jesus, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now I want you to jot this word down. It's a Greek word for image in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. I want you to write this verse or this, uh, this Greek word down. Uh, learn a little Greek today. It's the Greek word icon. I don't know if we have a, a, the word up there, Chris, or not, but the word is icon. It's spelled E-I-K-O-N. So it's spelled a little bit differently than how we spell it. E-I-K-O-N. And this is where we get the word icon from. Uh, And so the word icon, when you see an icon, it means an image or a figure or a likeness or a representation. What is an image? If I showed you a picture of my family, say, hey, here's my family. You'd say, hopefully rightly, no, that's a picture of your family, right? It's it's not my actual family. It's It's an image of them. It's an icon of them. And hopefully it fully represents them. The other day, I was, uh, I can't remember where I was, but someone came up to me and said, you look really familiar. And I said, is it the Blake Shelton connection? And they're like, that's what it is. Yes, you look just like Blake Shelton. I'm like, I'm not Blake Shelton, uh, but thank you. I don't like country music, but I'm sure he does. Um, I, if you were to take a picture of me, that represents me. Uh, it's, it's, it's not me, but it's a picture of me. So if, in like manner, if I showed you a few icons of companies, they, just the icon will represent the, the kind of a feeling you have or the emotion you have or the, the thought that you have of that company. Well, can we do a demonstration here for a minute? Let's just see if this works. I'm going to show you an image, and this should give you some type of connection to the brand. So we'll do a few. All right, so this should speak to you about envy. <laughs> envy, I want that, right? It just, it just kind of comes across that way. All right, this one wonder, right? Either wonder or bankruptcy, because if you're a parent of young kids, you go bankrupt when you show up at Disney. Uh, or there's this one, 
addiction. <laughs> addiction. Um, according to Fast Food Nation, research has shown that children will often recognize this next logo before they know their own name. They actually will recognize the golden arches before they know their name. You can show them a picture of themselves and a picture of the golden arches. They'll go, McDonald's, and then you point at their, their picture and they'll go, I got nothing. That's crazy. An icon, an image, is a representation of the original. Okay? And so, listen, we can't make images of God because the second commandment says that's kind of a bad idea. Uh, and, and though, because we're sinners, we can't see God and live. And so that's where we have Jesus. John 1.18, here's a few verses. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him known. John 1.14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If I want to see grace and truth in the Father, I see it in Jesus. And then finally, Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. See, when we look at Jesus, we see the radiance of God's glory. His essence is fully God, and yet his external representation was that of man. We see the image of God. And so if Jesus' words weren't enough to show them the Father, he now appeals to his works. Let's look at this third section, the Father's works. Look at the rest of verse 10. Jesus said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So here Jesus is affirming his dependence and reliance upon the Father. He's not speaking on his own authority, but the Father is corroborating his words by accomplishing great works through him. Uh, so what he's saying is you can take me at my words or you can take me at my works. Either way, it's hard to dismiss Jesus as liar or lunatic. Uh, now, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus then widens his circle of the works of the Father to us, his followers. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Uh, now, many of us will read that and we get a little confused and we focus on the word greater. That's probably not the most important word to focus on in this verse, but I understand it. The big question here is, well, what are the works that Jesus did? Uh, he tells the 11 disciples they're going to do greater works than he did. Well, what works did Jesus do? Uh, we could start sharing them. We could say miracles. Yeah, Jesus did miracles. But didn't Jesus also live in complete dependence upon the Father? That's pretty great. Uh, didn't Jesus obey the Father in all things? That's a work. Jesus demonstrated the love and truth of the Father. And Jesus confronted religious errors of his day. Those are certainly works that we are to follow in and accomplish. Uh, but the word I want you to focus on in verse 12 is the word because. Okay? He says, those who believe in me will do the works I do and greater works because I'm going to the Father. As we'll see later in John chapter 14 and also in John chapter 16, Jesus is promising that after he returns to the Father, he'll send the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell and empower believers. So when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the message of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... That gospel had the power to convert the soul from death to life. Uh, Jesus' greatest work, I believe, arguably, was raising Lazarus, a dead man, four days, from the grave to life. 
What could be greater than bringing someone from physical death back to physical life? Well, raising someone spiritually from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so Jesus is saying, it's necessary for me to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come in and dwell and empower the church so corporately we can do greater works, the works of proclaiming the gospel and seeing people go from uh, death to life and have regeneration. I think he may have also been saying that we'll do greater than Jesus in scope uh, because Jesus will not be localized to one body, right? The Spirit of God is now uh, not just at one place at one time, uh, but indwelling each and every believer. And so we can see the work of God uh, advance around the entire globe. Uh, even if it doesn't mean that, it always is greater to save souls than to heal bodies. And because Jesus rose and ascended, we now have that uh, opportunity to do that greater work. So... Let me just, on this point, make this, make this important point. It is erroneous to teach or believe that Jesus here meant individual believers should do more spectacular works than Jesus did. I hear people trying to walk on water, trying to heal people with shriveled hands, trying to multiply food, and guys, that's cringy, and more than cringy, it's false, okay? Luke starts the book of Acts telling Theophilus in his former book, aptly named Luke, uh, that he says, I began to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus began to do and teach, but it didn't end with his ascension. The Father's works began at the creation of the world, and they continue today through you and through me. And we get an opportunity to do the greater work of seeing a, a dead sinner brought to spiritual life. Isn't that awesome? Uh, if you've never had that opportunity, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. And as a church, we have that uh, opportunity in uh, this community. So look at verse 13. Uh, this is an amazing statement in these two verses. Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, obviously, hopefully you know this, Jesus is not saying, what is he not saying? He's not saying, pray for a Mercedes-Benz, Pray for free Disney tickets. Pray for Starbucks for life and unlimited McDonald's. See what I did there? Uh, the key to this passage is those, are those three words, in my name. Circle those with me. Highlight them. In my name. To ask in or to pray in Jesus' name does not mean tacking in Jesus' name those three words at the end of your prayer. So, Lord, I'm going to pray for this. And, oh, I, got, I forgot. I almost, I almost said amen without saying in Jesus' name. That's not the idea. Uh, to pray in Jesus' name, it's not a magic incantation. Listen, it means to have in a similar way what we have on earth with this legal term called power of attorney. When you sign over someone else to be your power of attorney, it means that you now are giving that person your critical decision, I'm making a financial decision, a real estate decision, as if the person who I'm power of attorney for is signing themselves. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, Listen, we're praying in accordance with his nature and his will. So I have a unity of mind, aim, and, and focus and motive with Christ himself. And so I can rest assured that when I pray that way, that, that the Father is glorified in the Son, verse 13, and then in verse 14, uh, he will do it. He, he will say yes if I'm praying according to his will. And so often we'll pray, Lord, I'm sick. Would you please heal me? Help me. Take this away. Take this problem away. And often the Lord says, not yet. And, and we're conformed into his image because that is in accordance with praying in his name. He wants us to be conformed into his image. Sometimes he says, 
well, yeah, I wanted you to rely on me. I'm going to get you through the situation. But he says often to us what he said to Paul, which is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So what an encouragement that we can be a part of the Father's work even today. I want to take a minute and apply uh, this passage of Scripture with uh, three application points. So if you guys are taking notes, it's dark. I don't know if you can even see your Bible. Uh, but three points of application. Number one, uh, I want to challenge us as a church to set our hearts at ease. See, the Lord is calling us to not allow our hearts to enter into a state of restless anxiety. You look back at verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. One pastor said you could take the word troubled out and say this, let not your heart, and this could be for some of us this morning, listen, let not your heart be agitated. Let not your heart be anxious. Let not your heart be worried, bothered, disturbed, uneasy, apprehensive, fearful, perturbed, distressed, disquieted, fretful, nervous, edgy, antsy, tense, overwrought, worked up, keyed up, jumpy, or worried, sick. One person said this, anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Wow. My estimation is that in our culture today, based on the stats of people taking uh, you know, antidepressants and different types of anxiety medication, and most likely, even in our church here today or listening right now, even in this very room, there may be some of us living with troubled hearts, hearts that are distressed and turbulent and anxious. And so when Jesus says in verse one, let not your heart be troubled, it's an imperative, it's a command. You could say it in a positive way, set your heart at ease. How do we set our heart at ease? By, by counting to 10, uh, by taking deep breaths and doing hot yoga, by binge watching Netflix? Well, no, that brings us to our second application point, which is number two, to trust Jesus. What was Jesus' solution to keep his disciples? Listen very carefully. Jesus was not inviting his disciples to transfer their trust from the Father to the Son, but to concentrate their unabated trust in the unseen one upon the incarnate Son. Tinney said it this way, Jesus' solution to perplexity is not a recipe, it's a relationship with him. You see, in, in verse one, in the Greek, it should read, you are to keep believing in God, you are to keep believing in me. You see, the solution for a troubled heart is simply faith, in Christ. Saving faith, yes, but sanctifying faith as well. The disciples were worried, we're going to betray you. We're going to leave you. You're leaving us. But he reassures them and tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and bring you to myself. What an incredible promise. And I think many of us don't live in the promises of God enough. We maybe read the scripture of the day. We maybe uh, have some verses that we've memorized, but we don't live and marinate in the, pre the promises of God. I'm currently reading uh, the unabridged audiobook version of The Pilgrim's Progress. Incredible title, by the way. Love it. Um, I would argue that, that The Pilgrim's Progress is required reading for every Christian. I'm, just, I'm at that point, so I'm kind of re-listening to it. Um, at one point in the story that I just read this week, um, Christian, it's kind of an allegory. It's like a, a it's it's kind of a metaphor, and so Christian and his friend Hopeful are locked in the, the castle called Doubting Castle, and they happen to be in this dungeon. It's 
called The Dungeon of Great Despair. And uh, all hope seems lost, and suddenly Christian says this in, in the unabridged version. He says, what a fool am I to thus lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my coat called promise that I, I will, if persuaded, will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And then he easily opens and is able to leave. The promise. You see, the number one command in Scripture is fear not. And it's almost always linked to the number one promise in Scripture, which is for I am with you. Today you could say, instead of fear not, you could could just insert the phrase fret not. Why? Because Jesus is going ahead of us to prepare a place for us. We'll be with him forever. And so when we are afraid, we remember the promise that God is with us. When we're overwhelmed, we remember the promise that God won't ever leave us or forsake us. One person said there's approximately 365 promises in the Bible. Isn't that an interesting number? There's one for every day. God is, unless it's a leap year. Uh, But God is faithful uh, that when we present our fears and our frets uh, to him, we have the assurance that all God has spoken will come to pass. And that means that we should As Paul told the Colossians, fix our minds not on temporal things, but on eternal things. Jesus promises to go before us. And that brings us to our third application point. Number three, we are to follow Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus doesn't just say, I I know the way. I remember the way, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Hey, guys, I found the way, and I can show you the way. No, he says, I am the way. Listen this morning to me. The way to heaven is not through good works, self-righteous religion, church attendance, Sabbath keeping, or righteous law abiding. Neither is the way to heaven through losing weight, meeting your financial goals, achieving ketosis, or tidying up your house by removing what doesn't spark joy. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, who is himself the way. Consider this powerful verse in Hebrews chapter 6. Incredible. Verses 19 and 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Wow. That word forerunner is so profound. It's the Greek word prodromai. Uh, William Barclay points out that in the Roman army, the prodromai were the reconnaissance troops. They were the forerunners. They went ahead of the main body of the army to blaze the trail and to ensure it was safe for the rest of the troops to follow. Barclay goes on and says that the, the, uh, the harbor of Alexandria was very difficult to approach. And so when the great corn ships came into the harbor, a little pilot boat was sent ahead of them to guide them into the channel uh, into safe waters. And that pilot boat was called the Podromos. Uh, it went first to make it safe for others to follow. And Barclay says that's what Jesus has done. He blazed the way to heaven and to God that we might follow in his steps. Isn't that amazing? He is the forerunner for our faith. Now, as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward uh, to close us in song. Go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled. And I have a, a, a strong pastor's challenge for us this morning. We try to give a different challenge every week. My pastor's challenge for us this morning is to consider your life through the lens of eternity. Consider your life through the lens of eternity. This morning, chances are many of us are anxious or troubled. And I want you to, just for a minute, 
If you want to close your eyes, you can do that. I just want you to think about the problem you're facing today, what's causing your heart to be troubled. When Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, the heart is the center of who you are. It's the very being of who you are. Whatever that issue is, I want you to think about this problem and the weight of it, and I want you to weigh that problem, financial, spiritual, social, whatever it is, weigh it against the weight of eternity. Will that concern of yours be a concern in 50 years? How about 500 years, 5,000 years? And though we're outside of the concept of time in heaven, the idea still stands. Is this trouble even worth being concerned about in the light of being with the Lord forever? This morning, would you consider your suffering in the light of eternity? Would you consider your successes in the light of eternity? Consider what you treasure, what you live for, what you long for, what you thirst for, what you drool about, what you dream about. Consider all of those things in light of an eternity spent with Jesus. You see, this world is not our home. Jesus is our home, and he's preparing a place for us even now. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I want to close this morning with the story of Martin Luther, the great reformer's favorite preacher. And let this kind of sink in, those of us who are worried and troubled about many things. Who was Martin Luther's favorite preacher? He said this, he said, I have one preacher I love better than any other. It's my little tame Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs upon my windowsill, especially at night, and he hops onto the sill when he wants his supply and takes as much as he desires to satisfy his need. From thence, he always hops to a little tree close by and lifts up his voice to God and sings his carol of praise and gratitude, tucks his little head under his wings and goes fast to sleep to leave tomorrow to look after itself. Wow. Would that we have the same simple faith in our God to meet our needs, to trust him with our todays, with our tomorrows, with our eternities. Amen? Father, we pray this morning that we would look to Jesus, who is the way to the Father. He is the express image of the invisible God. We look to the works of Jesus, we listen to the words of Jesus, and they affirm his deity, his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. And this morning, we're thankful that you're mindful of what we need. You who clothe the flowers of the field, you who know the numbers of hairs on our head, they're all numbered by you. We can just submit our lives to you, not let our hearts be troubled, but to believe in God and to believe in you. Lord, help us today to trust you. Help us today to follow you. Help us today to look at our lives and our momentary troubles in the light of eternity. I ask, Lord, that you would minister to us as we close in song. And we sing about the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth, above the earth, and under the earth. And confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we worship you this morning in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me as we close in wonderful song? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. 
If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.